I would invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. We're going to be looking today at Revelation verse 18. I was thinking about what uh, to preach on this morning. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks since I've had the opportunity of preaching and uh, trying to think about what do we do? Do we uh, uh, kind of pause our, our series in Revelation? Uh, but then thinking about what we're talking about in Revelation, I thought, really, there's no better place for us to be. And so we're going to continue on and finish up our study of this book. And today we're looking at Revelation 18. Uh, just a couple of reminders before I read the passage for you. Uh, it's been a couple of weeks again since we've been in it. Uh, just a reminder of, of what Revelation is and how we're looking at it. It's a letter that was given by an angel to John. And he uh, then wrote it out in such a way that it was given to God's people in the first century in churches in Asia Minor. Uh, those people were dealing with a lot of very difficult life circumstances, persecution, suffering, uh, moments of doubt, moments of wondering whether God is present, uh, wondering whether God is there with them to help and to strengthen them. And so he wrote this letter to his people to encourage them and to fill them with hope. And to fill them with strength and to remind them of the big picture. And that is this, that God, no matter what it seems like in this world, God is in control and he wins. And if we are his people, if we are in Christ, we win with him. We've seen over the course of many months as we've been studying this book that John uses lots of symbolism and pictures to give us a description of this wonderful, massive uh, spiritual battle that is taking place all around us. This battle between those who oppose God, uh, people like or, or beings like the red dragon, Satan, and the two beasts, and Babylon the prostitute, things that we've seen in previous weeks, having this great battle against God and his people. The section that we're in presently, chapter 17 through 19, is where we're seeing very, very clearly God. Jesus himself is freeing his people, rescuing his church from evil and from the evil one. And just a quick reminder, uh, we read a lot about uh, this reference to Babylon in chapter 18. We've been talking about that over recent weeks. That name shows up a lot. It actually shows up a lot throughout the Bible. It's used to describe anyone, any nation, any king, any spiritual being that would oppose God. And we think about like the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. We think about the nation of Babylon that was used to bring uh, Israel in, into exile in the Old Testament. And certainly here we reference Babylon, the prostitute. In the New Testament books, uh, it's often used as a code word for first century Rome and the Roman Empire. But uh, New Testament scholar Doug Kelly wrote that really we should think of Babylon as the worldwide humanistic system that is hostile to God, that rejects his word, refuses the salvation that is offered through Christ. That's what is being referenced here when we read about Babylon. So let's look and see what Revelation 18 says to us this morning, beginning in verse 1. John says, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. For her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her, since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, Wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves, that is, human souls. The fruit from which your soul longed has gone from you, and all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeteers will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of a bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is true. Would you help us to understand it? Would you send your spirit and help us to see wonderful things from this portion of your word? Help us to celebrate your work. 
Help us to celebrate the gospel of your grace and mercy. Through the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. On the morning of June 3rd, 1942, two squadrons of American torpedo bombers uh, spotted a Japanese uh, uh, aircraft carrier group about 700 miles west of Midway Island. The American bombers uh, launched an immediate attack and were responded. The response was that 50 Japanese Zero fighters, who were much better equipped, engaged the American torpedo bombers and shot down all of the American planes. Not one of the American torpedoes hit a Japanese ship in that one uh, uh, battle that was taking place. There was only one pilot that survived uh, from the American bombers. It was a man named George H. Gay. His plane was shot down, but he managed to bail out and he ended up floating in the ocean with a life vest and part of his seat cushion, enabling him to float on the surface of the Pacific Ocean. And George Gay watched the unfolding events of the great battle of Midway with a front row seat, as it were. He watched as more bombers showed up. And eventually three of the four vital Japanese carriers were bombed and set on fire and eventually sank. There he was bobbing in the Pacific Ocean, cheering on his friends and fellow soldiers from his front row seat. Revelation 18 this morning is giving us a front row seat to an even greater and even bigger battle that is taking place. Babylon the Great has been at war with God and his people and has brought terrible suffering and persecution. And Revelation 18 is telling us with great certainty that Babylon, the great, those who oppose the one true God will be defeated once and for all. In fact, it is so certain that even though the events that are being talked about in the first century in Revelation 18 were to be in the future, did you notice, even in verse 2, how he speaks about them in the past? That's to show us, to show God's people, that they are so certain, so sure to take place, that he would even speak of them in the past. Revelation 18 is meant to encourage us. It's meant to make us cheer on the work of the Lord, and it's meant to fill us with hope. This is something that the Christians in the first century desperately needed to hear in the midst of persecution and suffering. And it's something that God's people today need to hear desperately as well. Have we felt uncertain? Have we felt anxious? Have we felt afraid? Have we felt angry? Are we wondering, where is God? Where is God in the midst of our days? Then let God's word, specifically from Revelation 18 this morning, fill you with hope and with strength. For it to do so this morning, I want us to see three things. There are lots of things in this passage, but we're just going to pull three things out in particular to help us to have a sense of hope in God more than anything else. The three things are this, how fragile life really is. Secondly, that the end of all things is coming one day. And lastly, that God's people have nothing to fear and can be filled with a genuine and lasting hope. So first of all, life is fragile. Back in the passage in verses 1 through 3, we read, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. 
She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual morality. The kings of the earth have committed the immorality with her and merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. And then again in verse 10, alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour. Your judgment has come. Revelation 18 is giving us this picture of God bringing an end to the great, to the mighty Babylon. Babylon the great to be no more. It's a picture of God bringing an end to all those who oppose him. Specifically, the the world that opposes God. And here we're getting language from the Old Testament prophets, from Jeremiah, from Isaiah, from Ezekiel. And John is using the the language of the Old Testament prophets to speak about the utter destruction and the ruin of a godless society. It's a picture for us of just how fragile life is. The great and the powerful Babylon is reduced to nothing. Just think about how secure we felt in life just a few weeks ago. Now, certainly we've all uh, all have problems in life. And even three weeks ago, life was uncertain in some ways and was difficult in many ways. But as a whole, we can say, particularly as it relates to now and how we feel now, life was pretty secure about three weeks ago. And think about what has caused this pandemic. It's a virus the size of just a couple microns. Now, a micron is one one millionth of a meter. That's point zero 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 four inches. Okay. A human hair is about 75 microns across. The COVID-19 virus is just a couple microns across. This is a tiny, tiny thing. And yet something so small is wrecking havoc in our world. It really gives us a sense of how fragile we are, how fragile life is. Nothing, nothing compares to the power and the authority of the Lord God Almighty. The world thinks of itself as being powerful and resilient and civilized and sophisticated. But what we're seeing happening today, what we see happening in Revelation 18 reminds us that life is indeed very fragile. But the picture that we get here in Revelation 18 is not about some virus pandemic that is bringing a temporary slowdown to world events and economies. Revelation 18 is speaking about God bringing an end to the entire world that is in opposition to him. It's about the end of all things coming. And notice we read that the end of all things coming is a certainty. We again just remind ourselves of what he says in verse two. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. As I mentioned just a minute ago, we're, we're here. The, the language that's being used here is called the prophetic past tense. It's something that when it was written was to be in the future. It hasn't happened yet, but it's being spoken of in the past tense because it is so certain to take place. And if you're a Christian and you believe that the Bible is God's word, that it is trustworthy, that it is authoritative, then here is what it tells you. That no matter what doubts may come, 
No matter how out of control things may seem all around us, it is absolutely certain that God is in control and he will bring an end to all that opposes him and all that oppose his people. It's a certainty. But but notice it's also something that will be a time of great loss. Not a great loss for God's people, but a a great loss for all those who would oppose God. We have this dramatic picture taking place in verses 9 through 19. Uh, the, 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 The dramatic impact that happens as a result of Babylon the Great being destroyed. You can see it here first in verses 9 and 10, where it speaks of the kings of the earth. Governments and leaders and powers and systems that were benefiting from Babylon the Great. And as she is destroyed, as she is brought down to utter ruin, the kings of the earth weep and wail, we read in verses 9 and 10, because that which gave them their power, that which gave them their authority and their prestige is defeated. So it's a a day of mourning for them. Verses 11 through the beginning of verse 17, we read about the merchants of the earth. And we read that they weep and mourn because their wealth, their livelihood has been taken away. When Babylon the Great is destroyed, no one is left to buy all of the things that they had to sell. And we see this wonderful list of the things that they would sell in verses 11 through 13. The merchants were impacted by the fall of Babylon. The greed and the excess of Babylon having been destroyed and those who benefited from that would be taken down as well. The wealth of those who are opposed to God would be laid waste. We see at the end of verse 17 through verse 19 another group that is weeping and mourning. It's the seafarers, the sailors of the earth. They cry out, they mourn because what enabled them to have wealth and riches has been taken away as well. It's it's a time of great loss in the world. We see it again in verses 21 through 24. It's a mention that as Babylon the Great falls, all of these wonderful things, these are actually great things that are listed. Music and art and craftsmen and uh, production and light and even marriage and intimacy. All of these things are wonderful things. But in Babylon the Great, they are used for evil and ungodly and selfish purposes. And so they are brought to nothing. Now, if you were reading this in the first century for the first time when it first came to you, you certainly would understand what is being said here as a reference to the city of Rome and to the Roman Empire. We read from Suetonius, who was an ancient historian. He wrote of uh, Caligula, who was one of the Roman emperors, and he wrote about him in this way. He said, in reckless extravagance, he outdid the prodigals of all times in ingenuity. Inventing a new sort of bath and unnatural varieties of food and feasts. He would bathe in hot or cold perfumed oils, drink pearls of great price that had been dissolved in vinegar and set before his guests loaves and meats of gold. And it's been said of Roman Emperor Nero that he never wore the same garments twice. He never traveled with less than a thousand carriages carriages, and he always had his horses fit with silver horseshoes. The Rome of the first century, the Roman Empire of the first century and beyond was rich and extravagant and excesses. But what we're reading here is that as she is brought down, as Babylon the Great, as those who oppose God are brought down, then all of those excesses are brought down as well. Anyone and everyone who opposes the Lord God Almighty is being spoken to here 
in these words. It is something that is certain that the end is coming. It will be a time of great loss for those who are not God's people. But also notice we're told that it will be sudden. At the end of verse 10, we read that Babylon was brought to nothing in a single hour. At the uh, beginning of verse 17, we read that in a single hour, all of her wealth was laid waste. And at the end again of verse 19, we read that in a single hour, Babylon was laid waste. She was destroyed and ruined. Now, it's not saying that all of this happened in a literal hour. Uh, The point is this, that... It was sudden, that it was unexpected, that it was swift. It's a reminder that when God's patience comes to an end, His common grace, experienced by the entire world, will come to an end as well. In an hour's time, Babylon was destroyed and ruined. Her wealth, her luxury, her excesses, her extravagance evaporated into nothingness. It's just a reminder hearing some of the details of what's happening in our financial markets uh, as uh, from the beginning of January until just recently, uh, some sources are saying that over $26 trillion has been lost in the market, the world uh, global market. That's unfathomable. We can't even get our minds around that. Jeff uh, Bezos, the richest person in the world, uh, has been said that he's lost about $5 billion in the last few weeks. It's just impossible to conceive. It it happens so fast. It happens suddenly. Imagine all of that wealth gone so quickly, so suddenly. Babylon the Great comes to her end swiftly, suddenly, unexpectedly. We also read that it will be forever. Verse 21 of chapter 18, we read, uh, a, great, a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence. John is using a very specific image here with this stone being thrown down. He's actually drawing upon Jeremiah chapter 51 here in this verse. In Jeremiah chapter 51, God is speaking about the downfall of the literal nation of Babylon who had taken Israel into exile. And he told uh, Israel that he would rescue them, that he would bring them out of exile. And he sent that word by a letter to, uh, with somebody to take it to the exiles in Babylon. And the person that took that letter of God's word of promise and of grace of the fall of Babylon and the restoration of God's people. After he gave that word to his people, he was instructed by Jeremiah to take the letter wrap a a heavy rock around it and throw it into the Euphrates River as a visual demonstration of how final this decree, this judgment of God would be. So John here is picking up this image in Revelation 18, verse 21. This mighty angel, we imagine would be pretty strong, right? A, A mighty angel took up a massive stone, a millstone, and throws it into the ocean. What would happen? The rock would sink and it would never be seen again. And so he's saying, when Babylon the Great is judged by God, there would be no possibility of return. Those who oppose the Lord would never be able to recover from this judgment. So, if this is what will happen to Babylon and all those who oppose the Lord, then doesn't it make complete sense that God would speak to his people and say what he does in verse 4? Here's the application that he gives to his people in verse four. I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share 
in her plagues. Come out of Babylon, he says. Don't have anything to do with her. Come out, come away from those who oppose the Lord. Because the danger, he, he says, will be that we will compromise and take part in her sins. That we will be influenced by her and give in to her ways. This is a very common application that God gives to his people throughout the Bible. To come out from Babylon. To come out of the world so it's important for us to think for here just for a moment of what that does and doesn't mean. So let's start as we try to think about what does it mean to come out of Babylon? What does it mean to come out of a world that opposes the one true God? Let's actually just look and see what Jesus says about some of these things. Now, the first passage is in John chapter 17. Jesus in John 17 is praying. He's praying for a number of things, but one of the things that he prays for is his people, not only that were in front of him in the first century, but praying for all of his disciples throughout history. And in this prayer in John 17, beginning in verse 14, speaking, Jesus speaking to his father in heaven says, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Now listen to what he says. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Jesus' words to us about how we are to relate in the world, but being not of the world. Again, Jesus spoke to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16, that portion of Matthew's gospel that is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. And there in Matthew 5, Jesus speaking to his disciples says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. So what we know from Jesus's own lips, when we are to be coming out of Babylon, coming out of the world, it doesn't mean that we are to have some kind of complete, absolute withdrawal from society, even a non-Christian society. So what does it mean? Well, just think about what Revelation 4 says. Come out of her, my people, lest... You become, you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. This is part of what it means. Don't take part in the sins of an ungodly world. Don't suffer the judgments that the world will suffer. We think of what Paul said in Galatians chapter 2. Pretty familiar passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And then again at the end of the letter, chapter 6. Jesus, Paul saying that uh, Paul says that I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Far be it from me to boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's what it means to come out of Babylon to be in the world, but not of the world, means to be in this world, to be a part of it, but to spiritually belong to the Lord. We have been crucified to the world and the world has been crucified to us. That is, our hearts are dead to the world and are to be alive to the Lord. 
We must know what the idols of our culture are, those things which would lure, which would lure and tempt us, and we must resist the pressure to give in. We are to be in this world really and truly, but we are not to be of this world. This is not our home. We are to live as exiles here because we're awaiting our final home that is coming. I've told you the story before. It's a really an incredible story. It's a true story of a friend of mine uh, who at the time was living in St. Louis and uh, at the time had two little boys. Uh, and decided to take them to the St. Louis Zoo, which is a wonderful zoo. The boys had been to the zoo many times, and uh, they knew that one of their favorite attractions were, were the lions. It was uh, this wonderful uh, attraction that you could get up uh, to the fence and see the lions just on the other side of the fence. And on this one particular day, when the father took the two boys in, the boys were excited. They ran ahead as they got in uh, to the big cat country, which was where the lions uh, were held. And they ran ahead of their father. They got to the exhibit ahead of their father. And they found the smallest of gaps between the fence posts. They squeezed. They slipped through. And as the father looked up to see them, he saw that they were standing on the other side of the fence, looking down at the lions. As you would imagine, the father was in shock. He was horrified. He knew that his two children, his two boys, his, his beloved sons, were in imminent danger. He had enough wits about him to realize that if he yelled to them or if he ran toward them, it might startle them. They might lose their footing and fall into the area where the lions were waiting for their lunch. So he got down on his knees and he opened up his arms and he calmly but loudly called out to his boys by name, Colin, Jordan. Come give your dad a hug. As the boys looked over at their dad, they saw him in a very familiar posture. It was one they were used to. And so they squeezed back through the fence posts and ran to their father and embraced their father as he wrapped his arms of safety and security around them. That's a picture that's a picture of what it means, what it looks like to come out of Babylon. That we would see the love of our Father in heaven for us. That we, would, that we would see the love of the gospel of His grace and mercy. That we would see the love of the cross. The love of Jesus Christ Himself giving Himself for us. And that we would be so moved and consumed and focused on that love of our Father for us. That the dangers... That the dangerous and ungodly things of this world would not grab us. We would find ourselves safely in the embrace of our Father and so delight in Him that the godless idols and the sins of the world would mean nothing to us. And that's the reason why we can have this reminder that there is hope. There is hope for God's people, even in the midst of what is being described for us in chapter 18 of Revelation. 
That's why, as God's people, we should be filled with incredible and lasting hope, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of crisis. Did you note the contrast? Here we have in verses 9 through 19 this picture of mourning and weeping. As Babylon is defeated and those who are a part of her, those who are who are influenced by her, feel the loss of Babylon the great. And so they mourn, they weep, they cry out. But did you notice the contrast of what happens when we come to verse 20? God's people rejoice. All of heaven rejoices, we are told. And when we, get, we go on in the next chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 19, after this, John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. God's people are to be people of incredible hope because they belong to a God who is in control and a God who ultimately wins. God's people are to be a people of hope because salvation and glory and power belong to our God. God's people are to be a people of hope because in the end he wins and his people will win with him. God's people are to be a people of hope because we have the promise that no matter what happens in this world, there is a new heavens and a new earth that is coming, our true home. Peter talked about that in his second letter, 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to what Peter says. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for... And hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, God's promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There's no doubt about the fact that we are in a genuine world crisis right now. What if. The worst case scenarios come true. What if the very worst case scenarios become a reality? What if what we're experiencing right now actually turns in some, into something similar to the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic? What if the craziness and the danger that we're experiencing are not just a matter of weeks or months, but a much longer period of time? What if for the foreseeable future, there is no more gathering together of more than 10 or 50 people. What if Wall Street completely collapses? What if global economies are destroyed? Now, I truly believe that we have good reasons to believe that those things are not going to come to pass. But what if they did? What if the worst case scenario became reality? That would certainly be depressing to think about. It would be awful. Our lives, our world would be in a very different place. But what we read about in Revelation 18 would not change. God is still in control. He is still on the throne of his grace and truth. And King Jesus still wins. And if we are his people we win with him. Babylon will be defeated. She is already. 
And the new heavens and the new earth are coming. Nothing can change our status as God's beloved and treasured people. Our hope is not in our health or in Wall Street or whether we can find toilet paper at the store. Our hope is in the Lord because He is our refuge and strength. He is our very present help in trouble. And therefore, we as God's people will not fear. We will be still and know that He is God and we will have hope and strength because God is in control. King Jesus wins. And the gospel is true. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us in such a way that we can read it, that we can believe it, that we can trust it. But we often, our, our hearts, our trust, our hope often wavers. And so we need your word to come to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we do pray that your spirit would be at work, taking your word, not just in these moments, but in these days and weeks and months to come, and pressing it deeply into us that we would be people of hope, a hope that is not passing, a hope that is not contingent on the circumstances of life, but a hope that is rooted in a God who is eternal and true and good and faithful. Help us to believe what your word tells us and send us out, Father, in whatever ways we're able to serve you faithfully in this world, in our homes, in our communities. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.